Exploremore presents a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a devil or two to boot by Alec and Jan Foreman. Chapter 1. Midnight Terror. Canada. Bang! 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 Blood-curdling screams echoed through the building. We instantly crouched low and looked at each other in shock. What the hell is going on? cried Sue. It sounds like doors smashing to the ground. No, it's gunfire, I gasped. Bang! 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 The shot sounded closer. Hide! screamed Ingrid. But where? I panicked as I sped to softly close the washroom door, wishing there was a key in the lock. Escape! I dashed to open the sash window, but it was firmly sealed from the last paint job, just as well as we were three floors up. I looked to the curtain showers, and the bloody scene from Psycho flashed before my eyes. Quick, over here! Cathy mouthed in a muted yell, wildly waving for us to come. She was standing by two enormous roll-top Victorian bathtubs, which stood on clawed feet and were covered with heavy wooden boards. Ingrid ran to assist Cathy in raising one board, while Sue and I went to the second bath and uncovered it. Cathy and Ingrid, in their slinky nightwear, slid into their bath easily. But for us two, dressed in our jeans, bulky parkas and heavy hiking boots, it was a real challenge. We clambered into the bath awkwardly, entwining our tall bodies in order to pull the board down on top of us. It lay lopsided, but it had to do. The building became chillingly quiet. We gripped one another's hands and held our breath, lying in fear of becoming a bloody pulp at any second, our ears strained to detect any sound of the sniper approaching. My heart thumped so hard that I felt sure the killer would be able to hear it, like a ticking time bomb. I whispered a sigh and breathed again. My tongue felt like a dry flannel. Was this really happening? Less than an hour earlier, Sue and I were in downtown Vancouver. We supped beer whilst eating a bowl of Irish stew and listening to a funky folk band, unaware that trouble was brewing. The Harp and Heather pub hummed with Rauka's merrymakers and cigarette smoke filled the air. A week before we had left Wainwright, Alberta, where we both nursed at the General Hospital. My six-month contract was almost up, so I decided to take a holiday to explore British Columbia with Sue, who also hailed from England. Drink up, I cried, as I glanced at my watch and saw it was close to the 1am hostel curfew. We left the bar with only minutes to spare to the next bus and ran through the well-lit streets to the bus stop. A couple of guys I recognised from the Jericho hostel were waiting there, and I was glad we weren't the only ones cutting it fine. The bus arrived and we boarded for the 20-minute ride, 
then jumped off and sprinted back to the hostel. Too late, locked out on a cold and wintry night, we scouted around the impregnable building. Suddenly, one of the guys spied a way of entry, two stories up, and he shimmied up the drainpipe to gain access through an open window. He ran downstairs and unlocked the basement back door, and we slipped inside. Sue and I quietly climbed the stairs to the girls' third floor. First to the washroom, where we met two young American women, scantily clad in flimsy nightdresses. Desperate for the loo, I dashed into the cubicle and chatted from the other side of the door, as did Sue in another. We introduced ourselves, and Cathy and Ingrid eagerly told us about their travels so far. Having bussed up from California, they planned to take a flight to West Berlin and begin a tour of Europe. I came out to wash my hands at the basin and told the girls about when I lived in Germany. The great wine fests, medieval towns and castles, a trip to Saint-Tropez in France, seeing the luxury yachts of the rich and... Bang! 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 Quivering, I lay there, waiting and wondering in the silence. I thought of my man, my lover, how incredibly far away he was. My eyes welled up and tears trickled down my cheeks. After six months of wedded bliss in England, we had travelled to Toronto to begin our planned individual adventures. We hugged and kissed at the railway station on the 27th of September, three days after my birthday. I alone then boarded the train for the 48-hour journey across Canada to Wainwright. A few days later, my Alec an aircraft engineer set off from Toronto with Bert the pilot in a de Havilland Twin Otter aircraft to fly south over the Americas to Antarctica. Along with Giles and Slim, who flew in the second Twin Otter, the four men made up the British Antarctic Survey aviation team. En route, they stayed overnight at many exotic locations, such as South Caicos Island, Trinidad, Manaus in Brazil, Santa Cruz in Bolivia and Mendoza in Argentina. The long-haul flights took them over the turquoise seascape that surrounds the Caribbean islands. They saw the vast, forbidding Brazilian jungle with the Amazon River snaking its way through the tropical lush green vista. They flew south following the majestic snow-capped Andes mountain range to Punta Arenas in Chile on the western shore of the Strait of Magellan. With the promise of fine weather, the two planes then flew across Drake's Passage, the formidable expanse of ocean between Cape Horn and the Antarctic continent. Images of my blonde, blue-eyed Alec flickered in my mind. He had been away for five months, and in four weeks we were to be reunited back in Toronto. Or would we? Before I left my room at the nurse's accommodation in Wainwright, I'd placed on my bedside table a farewell love letter to Alec. I'm unsure what had prompted me to write such a letter, but I wanted Alec to know of my unfailing and constant love and adoration of him in case for some reason I died on my trip. God forbid! I felt as if my day of doom had actually come. Terrified, my guts churned, my skin felt hot, then chilled. I squeezed Sue's hand and she squeezed mine back. It was very quiet. I heard no sirens. 
was no one coming to take care of the wounded or dead. Sue and I, both nurses, could have helped. But where was the gunman? I wondered who would notify my family if I didn't survive the ordeal. My parents had advised against hitchhiking on the trip, but we had been in no danger from the truckers who gave us a ride from town to town in the Rockies. But now, now... Do you think it's safe? murmured Ingrid from the other bath. A beam of light from the ceiling bulb enabled me to see my watch and I realised we had been hiding in the dirty, cramped old baths for 45 minutes. Listening for harmless noises, I heard voices and the movement of people on the floor below. They were orderly sounds, so we agreed to take a chance. Quietly, we raised the wooden boards and stealthily climbed out of the baths. My body felt numb and tingly from being so cramped, but I was very much alive. I carefully opened the washroom door, just a crack, enough to peer out and survey the scene. Seated on the stairs, crouched over, was a young guy who beckoned us to come across the landing. Keep down below the windows, he may still be outside. Despite his caution, I glanced quickly as I passed by the window. The headlights of emergency vehicles that encircled the building floodlit the hostel. Police were crouched down, guns at the ready, as they took cover behind their vehicles to monitor the situation. I sat down on the stairs amongst the frightened hostelers. Everyone was talking in whispers as we looked down into the stairwell. One of the injured guys was carried out on a stretcher. His friends recognised his blood-streaked face as he turned his head. His gaze was stunned. Several armed policemen searched the hostel and it was not long before the press arrived. Reporters from national newspapers and television stations were hungry for any information. They photographed everything from the blood-stained walls to the huddle of folk on the stairs. The officer in charge ordered us all to go down to the basement canteen. We did as instructed and a babble of noise rose out of the fearful silence. We each wrote a statement detailing what we had seen, heard or experienced before or during the ordeal. Unbelievably, some folk had managed to sleep through the entire incident. They sauntered dreamily into the canteen, wrapped in their blankets, bleary-eyed and confused. A roll call was taken and everyone accounted for, except one. The young man identified as the gunman. The hours dragged on and the thought of venturing upstairs to our beds in the dead of night appealed to no one. So we gathered together in small groups and talked about all manner of things. But every so often, someone reverted back to that fateful hour. It was strange to witness many young macho men expressing their fear, terror and emotional pain. The rawness and shock of the frightening experience had made them feel vulnerable, open and needing to talk. Coffee, anyone? A hostile employee had put the kettle on. The hot drinks were most welcome. I sipped the sweet steaming coffee and munched on a piece of hot buttered toast. My mind pieced the whole story together as I listened to each witness's contribution to the bewildering puzzle. The gunman 
an 18-year-old from Toronto, had been staying all winter in the youth hostel. His roommates considered him quiet with no weird traits until that night. During the evening, he'd been out drinking with several of the hostlers in a nearby bar. Drunk and belligerent, he spilled a tale of woe of how depressed he felt, like he existed within a dead body. He spoke of war and bloodshed, of the automatic rifle and ammunition he had in his dormitory locker. He picked a fight with a guy who ended up with a black eye. Everyone became weary of his unsociable behaviour, so they began to leave. The young man was clearly disturbed, but since he was drunk at the time, no one believed he really had a weapon. He returned to the hostel in his inebriated, depressed state. There he changed into military attire and hid himself fully armed outside in the hostel grounds. It dawned on me that he must have watched Sue and I and the guys gain entry into the building. A shiver ran up my back. At 1.20am he blasted his way through the locked front door and dramatically reappeared in his dormitory. He fired a barrage of bullets at his roommates who dived for cover. One naked guy turned and jumped out of the window and several others followed suit. Those who had been asleep on the bunk beds had no way of escape as the gunman fired indiscriminately in all directions. Five young men were seriously wounded and one had a bullet pierce his lung. It was only a short time before he ran out of ammunition. Immediately he turned tail and ran down to the basement out the door and into the darkness. The only available telephone had been in the pathway of danger, so it wasn't until the gunman had fled that the alarm was raised for the emergency service to come. Fortunately, not long after that, the gunman was detained. Having gained access to an ammunition store, he had unintentionally disturbed the owner, who reacted quickly and fired a blank cartridge into the air. The loud unexpected bang confused the crazed young man long enough for the storekeeper to make a citizen's arrest of the thief caught red-handed. His lethal frenzy was thankfully over. As the night slipped away and morning came, many of us departed from the hostel, heavily weighed down with our backpacks and disturbing memories of the night before. We had all met as total strangers Yet we parted that day having shared an experience none of us would ever forget. For Sue and I, our holiday continued for a few more days as we journeyed back to Wainwright via Banff, Calgary and Edmonton. I eagerly looked forward to returning to the hospital to see if any letters had arrived from Alec. The post was delivered and collected at Adelaide Island in Antarctica by the Royal Research Ship Bransfield. During our six months apart, the ship would have gone to the base just two or three times, depending on the ice condition. Alex's letters would give me great comfort after the unexpected nightmare in Vancouver, and I longed to tear up that ominous love letter I had so mysteriously written to him. You've been listening to a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a Devil or Two to Boot by Alec and Jan Foreman, presented by Explore More.
Explore More is an adventure lifestyle brand founded on the 1977 travel stories of Alec and Jan Foreman with a passion to inspire people to explore more of the world, engage with others and embrace global cultures to ensure a greater understanding for each other and enable positive progression. Discover great products and more on exploremore.com. That's E-X-P-L-M-O-R-E dot com.